Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Melissa. So good to be back with you. It's Sibling Day. I have been looking forward to this podcast for so long. And by Sibling Day, I mean that we're going to talk about, actually, we're going to talk to one of your children who is obviously a sibling to adopted brothers and sisters. This is a topic that you and I both hear from listeners and blog readers all the time about siblings because we're both parents to children by birth and through adoption. This topic is so important and it's really just not addressed a ton. So I'm just so thankful that Anna Rose, Lisa's daughter, was willing to share some of her thoughts about her journey in this area. And I think you're just going to love her interview. Yeah, it was a lot of fun interviewing her. You know, the the topic of siblings has really, I kind of, it's it's emotional. I feel like it burns in my heart. I am working on a book for parents about the sibling experience. And I've so far interviewed 53 different kids from, you know, young to older adults about their experience and things they share and their wisdom is just really remarkable. And we'll have a link in the show notes for that survey if any of you have kids who would like to participate. And I should note too that this really isn't about kids by birth versus kids by adoption. It's really about the kids who are in the home the home is stable, and then we bring new children in, and how the original kids are affected by the addition of new children. So it's a little bit different. I think sometimes people think I'm talking about bio versus adopted or foster, and that's really not what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a great distinction. So thanks for doing that. Because we had a similar situation where we had two kids by birth, and then we adopted, and then we were stable, and then we brought three more kids into the mix. And so sometimes I don't know how to categorize our youngest son because he's not a child by birth, but he's definitely a sibling who has been affected by an adoption. It is an important distinction to make, I think. What was really fun about interviewing Anna Rose, there are a couple interesting things about her. She is a middle child, but she's a middle of 11. So when she tells people she's a middle child, we always think that's a little bit funny because she's not like the middle of three, but she really had a unique place in our family where she was the very middle. And she'll talk about in, in, in the interview, she talks about her place in the family and where the adopted children came in. Something that's been really fun for me more recently with Anna Rose, not only has she contributed to the book, about less than a year ago, I was invited to speak in California at an adoptive mom's retreat. And I took Anna Rose along with me and she spoke with me about this topic. And she was so phenomenal. I was there and all, but she was really, really amazing. And we got great feedback about her interview when I interviewed her. Amazing. So the great thing is, is you guys, even though you didn't get to go all the way to California to hear Lisa and Anna Rose together, she is here in your back pocket or wherever you're listening to our podcast. And I will also just say, if you have a box of tissues around, you might want to grab it because this was an emotional interview for me too, because we have siblings. So if you have a sibling situation where you've brought an adoptive child into a pretty stable home, of siblings. And it's kind of been a bumpy journey. You might just want to grab some tissues because I think this is going to just really touch your heart. Anna Rose's candidness and her honesty is just phenomenal. And 
there's hope at the end. So stick around for the whole interview because you're definitely going to want to hear what she has to say at the end. So Anna Rose, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in your life right now. I am currently studying abroad in Barranquilla, Colombia, um, which is on the Caribbean coast of Colombia. So I get to live right by the ocean or the sea, I guess. I'm almost done. This is finals week, so I'm almost done with my junior year. And I'm preparing to go travel through South America this summer. That sounds really exciting. So we want to talk about your experience of being a sibling. What I'd like you to share with us is a little bit about just what it was like when your little brothers came home, they were the first adopted children to join our family. What was it like when they came home from Ethiopia? I have really sweet memories of the little boys coming home. Um, I just remember holding Wagayu for the first time. He was sleeping, and I just remember like feeling so fond and just in love with him and looking around and feeling so proud. Um, it was just a really sweet moment with him. Do you remember how old you were when they came home? I think I was eight. I think I was seven when we started the process and eight when they came home. Okay. So about three months after they came home, your sister Calcidon joined our family and she was five and a half at the time. Tell us about the day when you realized that life was going to be different for you now that Calcidon had joined our family. I think one memory specifically sticks out. Um, and it was really, really briefly after she came home, we went to on family vacation to the beach. Um, and I just remember it was a vacation like none other. She was very, very intense, like hectic and not panicked isn't the right word, but it was just, it was very intense. And it was kind of like, you could feel in the air that things were changing and things were going to be different from here on. What were your hopes when we adopted one last time? We brought one more sister home to you. So Beza and I are both born in September. Um, and we thought that she might have been born in the same year as me. And so I, of course, was ecstatic because I was like, I've always wanted a twin. This is perfect. Here's my buddy. Like the little boys have each other, Claire and Falcon have each other. And now like all have a sibling that's like my age and it's going to be so much fun and everything. And so that's kind of what I went into it expecting. So with Beza, you were the same age in many ways. But apart from that, there were some pretty significant differences. Educationally-wise, we're in very different places. um, And socially-wise. And she was struggling with a lot of adjustment and attachment and just all of those things. So as a whole, I was just in a much healthier place. And so we we didn't really connect the way that I thought, and I think it also created a lot of, um, like, a very hard dynamic, dynamic between her and I uh, because she could see that I was in such a different place. I think she felt very threatened by that, um, particularly because she had come from an orphanage, which is a place where generally a position of power is extremely important for survival. And all of a sudden, she wasn't at the top, really, which is kind of a, a weird way to put it. But I think that there was a lot of, she felt very threatened, and then that resulted in a lot of really hard experiences for me as a sibling in the mix. So she felt threatened because she had had a place in the orphanage. She'd figured out orphanage life and now she was having to figure out family life. And so I think a lot of her behaviors were driven by deep fear, you know, that she was trying to figure out how to fit in this family, you know, 
and uh, it was extremely complicated. Do you have any thoughts on sort of some of the extreme behaviors that we experienced after the kids came home and how you personally were affected by that? I think that kind of because of who I was, I was like, like I said, like I was a pretty mature child. Um, And I definitely just personality wise kind of had the personality of an older sibling and like very much a leader, lots of responsibility. I love to clean. (laughs) When we kind of entered a period of chaos in our family, I took on a lot of responsibility and took on a lot of weight. A lot of the times, like if one of my siblings, one of my doctor siblings was raging or was having really intense behavioral issues, I would kind of be the one to run around and like find my other siblings and take them from away from it um, and try to distract them and, and pray or read books to them or tell them stories or anything. And so I think a big part of that was that I never really got to process my own like fear or upheaval or like process those emotions of those really intense and sometimes scary moments. And so I think that that was a big way that those impacted me. Um, And I think the other way that it impacted me a lot was that I was either kind of in that leadership protecting role or I just wasn't present. One of my, the really close friend that I told you about, Emily, lived pretty close by. She lived about half a mile. And after we adopted, I started homeschooling with her. So her mom would usually teach me. Um, And so I spent a lot of time at her house. But there were a lot of times when that very much became an escape and kind of a, a refuge for me away from the chaos of home. Um, it was it was a blessing because it was a safe space, but it was also hard because it kind of felt like it created a divide between me and, and my family and my home and made it feel like home wasn't really a place where I could be. Do you want to share the story you've shared with me that you once told me was the hardest moment of your childhood? Yeah. So kind of the saddest memory that I have from my childhood, it's, it's funny to me that it's the saddest because it wasn't even anything particularly intense like it was honestly just a very everyday occurrence it wasn't anything particularly traumatic but I think that the reason why it kind of marks that title in my brain is because it because it was so representative of that time in my life and I think because even though there were some really like hard intense or scary experiences the things that were most painful for me was the isolation and the separation um and so this memory I think really rep- kind of represents that for in my experience and so there was this one day when I was, I had been at Emily's and I was doing school um, and I finished classes and everything. And so it was time to go home. So I walked home and as I started to walk up the stairs, I heard it. Um, and I heard just the very familiar sounds of screaming and banging and like slamming doors and um, the sounds of, of my sibling raging. And I saw you walk past the, the front door because it has like a glass window. Um, with the phone in your hand, and I knew that you were calling dad um, and that it was bad enough that he had to come home. And just this look of fear and stress and, and worry on your face. And I saw Samuel walk by with a very similar look on his face, trying to help. Um, and I just remember my heart just sinking. And I walked up the steps and started to open the front door. And then you saw me and, and kind of caught me halfway. And we're like, hey, I think it would be best if you went back to Emily's. And I, and I know that that was to protect me to removed me from a traumatic situation, but it was just very sad, like turning around, not even stepping foot inside, turning around, walking down the steps and walking off into the desk by myself. And it was just a very, like, that was just a very, very lonely time in my life. Um, And then kind of another side part of that is that when I got to Emily's house, I was just, I didn't know how to talk about it to anyone at that point, even though she's my best friend. I never told her about anything that was going on. 
And so I got there and I was just like, oh, my mom just said I could come back to play and like put on a happy face and went on, you know? Well, I think for any parent listening, oh gosh, it chokes me up. But, you know, for any of us, that may not seem dramatic, but we understand how painful that would be to feel like your place at home was not safe for you right then. And how can parents prepare their kids and their family, whether those kids came to them by birth, adoption, it doesn't matter, but kids that are in their family, life is stable, and then they adopt children with significant early trauma and lots of challenging behaviors. How can parents help prepare their kids? I think the biggest thing is educating your kids and helping them to, I mean, to prepare them and essentially helping them know and expect what's going to come and sometimes even preparing them for the worst because the worst thing that happens is they're prepared for the worst and then maybe things are better and then it's a relief. Um, but I think that a huge part of the shock for me and, and something that made our experience even harder was just that I was completely unaware of how it would actually be. And I was completely, like, I thought that it was just all rainbows and butterflies. And I was like, I'm getting 20 siblings. Yay. And I think that, that there should absolutely be that happiness and that excitement and that, like, this miracle of adoption. Um, but I think that also it's necessary, no matter how old your kids, to prepare them for, you know, and explain behaviors before the chaos hits. And to explain, like, hey, you know, you know your new brother or sister is coming from this kind of environment. Um, or they might, you know, they're coming home with some, you know, like some broken brokenness in their hearts or, or maybe some sad things that have happened in their life. And so they may act out because of that. And they may act really strangely. They may be mean. They may not treat mommy and daddy very well. Like anything like that, they may not treat, they may not know how to treat their siblings well or how to live in a family and things like that. And just, and helping kids understand like what behaviors they might experience or see. Um, and also explaining why those behaviors are there so that the kids aren't just like, oh, this is just a really mean kid, but understand this is why they're acting like that. I think that that would a much better protect the child to be more emotionally resilient and, and more emotionally safe in that experience to know, especially to know it's like, it's not my fault. It's not their fault either. It's the things that happen to them to kind of, yeah, to kind of not be as emotionally impacted by it. Best case scenario your adopted kids are actually great and they, and they adjust great and things are much smoother than you thought. And then it's just a relief. Um, I think the other biggest thing is putting in support systems for each of your children ahead of time. Cause I think a lot of time there's just kind of, you're in the adoption process and you don't think of that. And so you thought, Oh, well, you know, we'll do that once the kids come home. Um, but in reality, I think it's much better to do that ahead of time because you never know how things are going to be once the kids come home. And so setting in support systems, but also I think ideally it's best if you can create a unique support system for each individual child so that they each have their person or their family um, that is going to watch out for them because it's very likely that you won't be able to be there for them in nearly the same way that you were before. And so I think for them to have somewhere where they feel important and valued and listened to and safe and just have someone who's really watching out for that kid is really good. Let's talk a little bit about safety. You know, when we finally got to see a very, very good adoption therapist, <clears throat> I remember her telling me, she said, Lisa, your children are growing up in an atmosphere of domestic violence. And I was just stunned by her words. And yet I was also, it was a feeling of relief 
you know, looking back, of course, I wish that we would have protected you kids from, you know, the bullying, the, the aggression against you, even witnessing the violence and aggression against me. So what do you think parents could do to put some safeguards and protections in place from the beginning? I think one thing to definitely consider, really understanding and doing your research on disrupting the birth order. I wouldn't change anything about our experience, honestly, because even though it was really hard and very painful. However, like after going through our experience, I wouldn't recommend um, adopting out of the birth order. In the end, it's what you're called to. But I think that ideally it's just a safer option not to. So that's one thing to consider. And then I think another big thing is having safe spaces in your home for your children. It's like to have your adopted children not be maybe sharing a bedroom with your original children or having, I mean, if everyone has their own room or or however it works out, I think that having your, your original kids and your adopted kids or your, or the new additions to your family share a bedroom can open up a lot of opportunity, um, for just really unsafe scenarios. Um, and even if it's just that your kids need kind of a haven to escape to and just, you know, a place where they can go when things are chaotic or when their siblings acting out or whatever it is that they can just go and rest and feel safe and secure. Um, I think that that's really important. Those are really good thoughts. We've talked about some pretty heavy things. Tell me just a few joys of just a few joys of having adopted and foster siblings. I don't know if Faisal would call this the joy, but a happy memory I have is that we celebrated. Originally, we even on paper, she was a year younger. We kind of observed our birthdays together as twins, and then later on, we separated back to the one year difference. Um, but our our tenth birthday happened one month after she came home. And I remember it was essentially Anna Rose's birthday, but with Mesa's title on it, too. Um, I mean, we, we tried to make it special for her, but she didn't really speak much English yet, so she couldn't really express a lot of And I don't know if she really knew what to desire for her birthday. But anyway, we went on a camping trip, um, and I just remember it was really fun. And I remember, like, all of us girls staying up afterwards in the tent and um, and just including Beza in it and, like, teaching her how to play cops and robbers around in the forest around the campsite and how to roast a hot dog and um, like sharing candy and telling ghost stories but with a lantern at night in the tent, which I mean, she couldn't understand the stories, but she could still participate in it. And I just remember that being a really sweet memory of sharing that with her. If the you right now could say anything to the you, the 11 year old you eight years ago, what would you say? I would say two things. One, it will be okay. One day things will get better and it will not always be like this. It just got very dark for a very long time and it just kind of kept lasting and kept lasting. And I kept thinking like maybe this, you know, maybe especially we would try a new therapist or we would try a new treatment or we would try a new like you would try a new parenting technique or something like that it was just like we kept trying something new and I kind of kept putting my hope in that thing and then it just kept falling through and just no nothing ever changed that was very like I just kind of lost hope over and over and over again but the good news is it doesn't stay there and it didn't stay there for us and they, even though it was a long time and really hard it eventually did pull out of that and things started to get better and we started to see the light and I have a really specific moment um when I was in high school when I all of a sudden realized I was like you know what 
I'm thankful. I'm thankful for everything that happened and I'm thankful for our adoption and I'm thankful for the ways that it was hard and I'm thankful for the ways that I grew and I'm even thankful for some of the isolation that I experienced because it really shaped who I am and it really impacted my relationship with God Um, because when I was felt so alone and when I didn't really have anyone that I could go to he was there and then the other thing that I would tell myself is you do not need to do this alone one of the things that made my experience so hard I just didn't know how to talk about it and I didn't think that anyone would understand which kind of sounds so like classic junior high girl diary entry but my friends like at youth group or my friends at school or on my track team they have a concept of some of these other really hard things such as domestic violence or having an alcoholic parents or going through a divorce like those are all really hard things for a child to go through but they are like conscious of those things and most of them have at least one friend who's gone through that and so they're like those are familiar hardships to them whereas traumatized adopted sibling chaotic home life is like just not really on their radar like they don't really know how to process that and so that was just and I was acutely aware of that and I was like no one's gonna get it like at the most they'll be like oh your sibling acts out that's too bad so I just had this big fear of talking about it with people because I just didn't really think that they would understand and I thought that it would make me feel even more kind of isolated and lonely I didn't talk about it with people at church people at school my teachers anyone and so I just went through my life every day going through some really hard traumatic experiences at home and acting like everything was great and acting like I had a great life and and I remember people telling me all the time in high school Anna Rose you're the happiest person I know or like Anna Rose you have this perfect life perfect family you're just like all around perfect and I just remember literally people saying those things perfect life perfect family and just sitting there and just being like I have no idea what to say right now like I don't know how to react because I'm too deep in now like at this point people have been thinking these things for years and I've never told anyone they wouldn't believe me if I told them the truth, you know, and, and I was worried that people would think that I was looking for attention um, or things like that. And so I just didn't. And so I just was very lonely for a long time in a lot of that. Um, there was a time when, like, you know, all of my siblings were also going through this. We were all kind of going through our, our own hardships. And so even though we shared that and we could talk about it, we couldn't really, didn't have a lot to give. We couldn't really be there for each other a whole lot. And then you and dad were very, I mean, there was just so much with the kids that you weren't just, you weren't really in a place to be able to help me through that. And so I think the, the biggest thing that I would say to that 11 year old self is you don't need to do this alone. Start talking about it. So your two things that you would tell yourself are, it's not always going to be like this. It will get better. And two, don't try to do it alone. Find trusted people you can talk to. Yes. And, you know, I think um, a lot of parents like us are so focused on getting help for the child with all this trauma, the child who's bringing a lot of difficult things into the family, that we kind of, we know our other kids need help and support. We know that they probably all need therapists too to process this, but we're so overwhelmed with like, what's the most immediate, immediate need. So if I could do it all again, I would get help for all of you kids a lot faster. I would absolutely put more safety in place. I would, we thought we were keeping you all safe, both physically and emotionally, and, but um, we really 
I would, I would put a lot more in place to keep everybody safer and healthier. So tell us um, how your life has been shaped by adoption and foster care. Yeah, so many ways. I think that as much as kind of having to step up and having to grow up really fast was a hard thing at the time, it also was so, like it's something I'm thankful for now because I think that it formed a lot of my personality and like my strengths and gifts. Um, I think that I'm a strong leader and I'm responsible and good at organizing things and um, kind of good at taking initiative. And a lot of that is due to having it to kind of those ways that I had to step up back then. And I think also in that, that period of my life, I was very independent um, and I was kind of in charge of a lot of my life, but that was actually kind of a really cool thing because that also has opened up so many doors for me because in college, as I've gotten older, I haven't just sat back and waited for things to come for me or waited for other people to make things happen in my life, but I've really gotten for them myself um, and, and just taken a lot of that initiative. And so I think that, and I've had some pretty incredible opportunities because of that. And so I think that that, those are some really cool things that have come from it on a more like softer note and more kind of talking about the heart, like our lives completely changed and who I was completely changed. And I kind of, as a, as a, maybe a teen, I was kind of jealous of my friends who had really radical testimony stories, you know, <laughs> of like before this and after this. And I was like, go from the church my whole life, you know? Uh, but then when I started to think about it, as I kind of got older and started to really think through my story, I realized it's like, although I believed in God my whole life, I didn't really know him and I didn't really know Jesus or understand what it meant to follow Jesus or what he said and what he did and, and what that looks like to follow him um, until we adopted because adopting itself was us stepping in faithfulness to what God asked us to do um, and obeying and, and loving the alien, the orphan and the widow. And so that kind of triggered this, this idea of like, okay, what does it look like to actually follow Jesus in our lives? Um, and I started to read the Bible and I started to get to know who Jesus was and just really fall in love with him. As I got to know Jesus better, I started to really understand empathy and started to understand people who have gone through really hard things and, and what that looks like to reach out to them and what it looks like not to judge, but to be with someone and be present with someone in their, in their messy or broken places. And I think that those, that's one of the most important lessons that I've ever learned. Um, and it's definitely one of the things that I'm most thankful for out of that. Um, and I think that as a whole, that our family culture was changed in that direction. Um, but then kind of on a cool note too, I think that it just totally broadened my world. Like it kind of broke open this, this small little experience of the world that eight-year-old Anne Rose had and just broke it wide open um, and just expanded my, my horizons, my understandings of the world. And, you know, it connected me to a continent on the other side of the world. Um, and that really spurred a lot of international interest um, and interest in other cultures and languages and people groups that then developed into me learning Spanish. No, being not just learning Spanish, but being fluent in Spanish. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and me doing different projects to reach out to people in my community, which then kind of developed into me picking my majors and then studying abroad in Colombia. And so, I mean... So I don't think my life would be anywhere near what it is mm -hmm. if we hadn't adopted. And I don't think it would be nearly as wonderful or cool. I think I like myself a lot better who I am having gone through the experience of adopting than who I would have been without it. Well, that's, that is very beautiful, Anna. <laughs> that's so encouraging to me as a mom. 
Um, and I know it's encouraging to our listeners too, because a lot of times we wonder when things get really, really hard, you know, did we ruin our kids' lives? Did we ruin our family? And I think what you're saying is that we went through very, very hard things and we became actually a very different family. But the good part of that is that a lot of that suffering and the brokenness we went through, I think, brought us out to the other side of being a family that, you know, really loves and wants to serve people who are hurting in the world. And we're really passionate about our faith. And I think we're who we are meant to be, even though it was very hard. I think that's one of the, you know, we think about God makes beauty out of ashes. I think we went through a lot of ashes and a lot of hurt, but he has made something beautiful. He's made us into a different family altogether, really. Okay, if you could say one last thing to the adoptive and foster parents listening, what would you want to say to them? I will say that we go to this this family camp every year that's compiled of a lot of foster and adoptive families. And every September when we go, I just think to myself, wow, these moms are my heroes. Or like these parents are my heroes. And it's just, I just am in a room surrounded by these incredible people who have given up so much, sometimes given up everything and sacrifice in order to love, um, in order to give and um, in order to bless others and to follow Jesus. And I just think that those things are really incredible and that it's just super beautiful. And I think that for those who are believers, like, I think that like these people really demonstrate what it looks like to directly follow what Jesus says, where he says, like, give up your life and follow me, give up what you have and follow me. And I think that these people are some of the best examples that I've seen. So I think just that encouragement of in the end, like these lives aren't ours um, and they're God's and, and they're what he's given us and what he's asked us to do with them. And so I think just an encouragement that, um, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so I think that just the encouragement of uh, that one day that might be said to you and just that you're doing, doing the good work and that it will get better and that you don't have to do it alone. <laughs> Well, you just summarized our whole uh, interview. Thank you so much. And most of all, I appreciate hearing your beautiful heart. And I know Dad and I are very thankful for the grace that you've extended to us and all of the probably mistakes that we made, things we should have done, things we shouldn't have done. And we love you and appreciate that. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, so what did I tell you? Such a powerful interview. So thank you so much, Lisa, for inviting Anna Rose to do that because I just know it's going to be meaningful to so many of our listeners. Well, I'm really glad. She is a joy to my heart, as you can imagine. And the fact that she um, has forgiven us for our many, many mistakes means a lot. I hope that this interview is very helpful to you know all of our listeners. We do have a download, a free download about the sibling experience and giving voice to siblings. So we hope you'll go take a look at that. The download is called Five Tips for Staying Connected to Your Original Kids When New Siblings Join the Family. If you're already part of our email community, you will receive the download automatically in this week's quick connection. Otherwise, you can head to our website and grab it from the show notes, which can be found at theadoptionconnection.com slash five. 
come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener's question. And this week's question is, my child has more challenges than nearly any other child I know. Should I have my child tested and diagnosed? Yeah, it's such a good question. I do get asked this a lot about diagnoses and what the benefits are and if there's any drawbacks. Having walked through this with four kids now, this is kind of where I land. Diagnoses are really, really good if they're going to help you get more help, support, and or services that you know will serve your child well. Diagnosing can adjust for a diagnosis is not always super helpful. I was one of those people that didn't want to get a diagnosis because I didn't want to label my child. I didn't want to box them in. I didn't want it to follow them through, you know, all of school, all of their life, especially if we were able to come to a point of healing where it really didn't apply anymore. And we definitely have um, one of our kids who was diagnosed with multiple pretty scary diagnoses and does not have a single symptom of any of those diagnoses except some residual anxiety. But we've also found that there are some really helpful things in terms of therapies, how insurance covers things that require a diagnosis. In that case, I think it's totally worth it. Yeah, sometimes a diagnosis will open up sources of funding for kids. Different states have different kinds of funding. It will open up, like you were saying, insurance coverage for things that you might have been paying for on your own. Can give some opportunities. And if your kids are in school, it definitely provides extra support for them, either through a 504 plan or an IEP that's even more specified and supportive for a child. So I think it does offer some benefits for families, but it also has some negatives. Can you talk about that? Well, I know that a lot of diagnoses have kind of a stigma around them. And so especially if you know, someone who's helping, you know, who's on your child's team, a teacher or a sports coach or someone who you disclose the diagnosis to, it may actually work against your child. So I think in that case, one, you don't have to disclose diagnoses to everyone. And so I would just be careful who you disclose to. And two, if you do disclose, maybe provide some education around that, about what that means for your particular child, you know, just some practicals for how that would affect how that particular adult or caretaker for your child would interact with your child. So let's say that your child has an oppositional defiance disorder diagnosis. You may or may not want to disclose the actual diagnosis, but you could definitely say to a coach or a teacher, hey, my child may seem to really struggle with following instructions, but we've found that a really good way to get his buy-in is to offer him two choices rather than just telling him what he needs to do. You know, the more he feels included in the group or the classroom or the team or whatever, um, the more likely he is to go along with the plan. Yeah, that's a good point. I was just thinking about how sometimes a diagnosis can actually help the child themselves. Like my youngest was diagnosed. We finally did some testing and he was diagnosed with ADHD. I think it's helped him understand his struggles, that he's not a bad kid. The reason he's struggling so much more than his peers in terms of being still in class or not blurting things out is that he actually has a condition that makes it hard for him. And when I took him to meet his new teacher, I asked his permission to tell her that he takes medication in the morning for ADHD and that on occasion we forget and then, you know, he needs to 
get it at school. And anyhow, she was so great. And she said to him, well, tell me, what does it look like? What will I see if you've maybe not taken your medication? And he was able to tell her, he said, well, I'll probably talk too much. And, and then he went through a few different things that he recognizes about himself that the ADHD is part of his, you know, it kind of pulls some of these behaviors together for him in his mind. And I, I think it's really helpful for him. Yeah. I think the other part to that is we have always been very open with our kids about diagnoses and or what that means for their brain. I'm a really, I'm a brain science nerd now after having all of these kids with difficulties and from trauma. And yep, that, that's true. I'll just add that right here. That's definitely true. You are a brain science nerd. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. It is. So we, um, so even if we go for a diagnosis, a lot of times we'll explain to them why we looked for that diagnosis, because sometimes we're not looking to label them. We're looking for a service. And so we're not trying to say like, oh, I think you're a bad kid. Or I think sometimes we're not like, I don't even think you have this, but if we let a doctor say you have this, then we'll be able to get you this service or this extra help for you. Also explaining as best as we can, or as best as we know what that means in terms of their brain. And we've done things like brain scans and other tests and things that really get into that. And so we're able to say, well, like, we just know that this particular frequency of your brain isn't there as in the same way that it is in other kids' brains. And so that is why this behavior looks this way or this thing looks that way. And so I think it's really helpful for them. And then more importantly, it's really helpful for me because I always think like our kids with invisible disabilities, for someone who's such a concrete thinker, I really struggle with sometimes seeing a behavior and remembering that it's part of a disability. And I always think like if I had a child who was a paraplegic who didn't get out of his wheelchair and walk around during the day. And so I would have to help him toilet or get food or, you know, all the things that that would require of me as a caretaker. I would like to think I wouldn't be angry at this child who wouldn't just get up and get his own snack, right? But I find myself being really frustrated at my child who I know has a diagnosed brain condition and permanent brain damage. And when I have to remind him to do things, it drives me nuts, but really he can't. It's just the way his brain is built or not built. So being helpful to the mindset of our kids, but then also being helpful to the mindset for us, just so that our compassion is greater and doesn't expire every day. Absolutely. I found that for me, I just have more patience when I think about my kids' diagnoses of say PTSD or ADHD or different things. It does give me more compassion for them. I have to be careful though, because of my particular personality, I have to be careful not to let that become an excuse. I have compassion, but I'm, I want to put things in place for them to help them succeed. It's just something I have to work through in my mind when one of my child's uh, behaviors is really irritating me. You know, is this just regular tough kid behavior or is it specifically because of this condition? So it's something that I have to work out to balance for myself. I think that's huge. And I think it's hard and it's like a forever balance of like radically accepting our kids exactly where they are, but then also not giving up on them. So I feel like that's a tension I'm in all the time. And you know, there's another thing that is useful in terms of diagnosis, and that is sometimes it can actually give our child some protection. Melissa, do you want to talk a little bit about that? We've talked about it together, but I think our listeners would be interested too. Well, I mean, it just comes from watching one of my particular kids and just thinking, I can't protect him forever. And there's a very good possibility that he's going to do something that's 
just impulsive and not well thought out as an adult. And there's a really good possibility that he could be charged for doing something that was Mm -hmm. impulsive. You know, it's definitely like worst case scenario, but I felt like in his case, his diagnosis, I think will protect him if heaven forbid that should ever come to fruition and that he would, you know, possibly get be seen as someone who maybe needed more support and not as someone who was a criminal. Um, So that was one of the reasons besides my sanity and ability to accept him where he was. um, That was another piece of the puzzle. And then also the ability to be able to continue to help him navigate what his needs are beyond 18. Because I don't know, I mean, we have older kids and you have some older kids, Lisa, and I had never thought this far ahead until obviously our kids were older, but you know, once they turn 18, the law sees them as capable of caring for their own things. You no longer can check in with the doctor and see what's going on or manage medication or I don't, there's so many things that I took for granted that I have been helping my kids do. And then as a couple of them have turned 18, all of a sudden, like it's not a gradual like transition, like boom, you're just cut out of their life <laughs> from a professional standpoint. And so we have a couple of kids that I think would benefit from having us be able to help them navigate that system a little bit longer. And so a diagnosis can help you get guardianship, you know, some just legal allowance for you to continue to have a say in how your child is being helped or treated beyond 18. That's really good. That's really important to consider depending on the type of behaviors and the type of condition your child has. I mean, right now we're not talking about something like ADHD. We're talking about actual brain development challenges either, well, it could be trauma, could be exposure, could be all kinds of different things. I mean, I have a friend whose child had cerebral malaria, you know, so there are a lot of things that affect kids' brains that if they do have a diagnosis could provide them some protection and support in their adulthood as well. Some things to think about when you're going for a diagnosis, there's lots of places to get diagnoses depending on what type of diagnosis you're going after. I always think it's a great idea for families to be walking alongside a trauma-informed like therapist um, or social worker or someone who can help them just navigate this. Obviously, therapists can diagnose things like PTSD or attachment disorders. There's really not like testing so much, but it's more through relationship and getting to know your child that you can get those diagnoses. Things like sensory processing disorder and ADHD and things like that, those come through either like a neuropsych or they can come through the school system or your pediatrician. Know that you can get the same diagnosis through multiple channels. And sometimes that's helpful because it can kind of be corroborating. Um, But also know that some diagnoses, depending on where they're received from, don't always transfer into other venues. So a diagnosis by your school system for like an IEP may not get you insurance coverage. You may need to get an additional diagnosis from a medical provider or something like that. On the flip side, a diagnosis from a medical provider should go a long way, if not be fully acceptable by the school system. So the school system in most states, getting that is usually free. So that's, you know, a great place to start, but um, you might want another medical professional to kind of corroborate a diagnosis for you. Another thing to note also is that a diagnosis doesn't really change how your child should be parented. So um, Lisa and I are both fans of using connected parenting with kids by birth and adoption regardless of the diagnosis. And so, like I said, we've walked through this with four kids now. Some of them are grown and already gone, and they have a whole variety of diagnoses. And these connected parenting techniques kind of work no matter what. 
So I hope this is helpful to our friend who submitted this question. If you would like to submit a question for a future episode, send an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com or leave a message for us at our number 208-741-3880. We promise nobody will answer. You just get to leave your question and record it and then you might get to hear it on air, which would be great. If you need more personalized help, We also offer private coaching. For more info, you can head to our website, theadoptionconnection.com, and click services, and you will find it there. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.